Welcome to the Search Engine Journal Show. Thanks for joining us. I am Danny Goodwin, Executive Editor of Search Engine Journal, and I am at Mr. Danny Goodwin on Twitter. Today I've got a very special guest. I'm super excited to welcome in. It is none other than John Mueller. John is the Senior Webmaster Trends Analyst at Google, and he's been working at Google since September of 2007. You can find him on Twitter at John Mew. Uh, that's John M-U. Uh, John, welcome to the Search Engine Journal Show. It is great to have you here today. Hi, Danny. Uh, great to be here. Awesome. Really excited to do this. Um, so basically, where I wanted to start with you, uh, talk a little bit about your career. So um, one of the things I was always curious about is what did you? What was uh, your career before joining Google? What did you do? Okay before joining Google. So that's that's a pretty long time ago. Um, uh, essentially, what what I did before Google is I, I had my own software company uh, with a small team. Uh, so we, we created software for various things here in Switzerland. And at some point, we, we started doing websites as well, like probably a lot of software companies out there. And uh, over time, I, I just kind of, I don't know, dug a little bit more into all of this website stuff. Mm -hmm. And sitemaps just came up. Uh, so I created a sitemaps generator that would crawl your website and generate a sitemap file for you. And that was really fascinating. Uh, the I think the original help forums from Google came up right around that time, too. So I started being active there and trying to figure out how, how these search engines kind of work. Mm. And yeah, that's that's kind of how how I slid into the whole area. I think everyone from around that time didn't like actively go out and say, "Well, I'm going to find a job doing something in search," but rather like you do something, and it seems to work, and then search seems to be interesting, so you seem to kind of slide into that accidentally, more or less. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I saw via Twitter when I put the word out yesterday that um, you used to be pretty involved with forums too back in the day, like create a site, uh, create a site, I believe, right? Is that the right one? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's pretty interesting that that's sort of how you just sort of transitioned in there. So, what what was the point where you you know, decided to step away from your company and join Google? Was there anything in particular that led to that? Um, I, I I think. The the kind of the the aspect that came up a little bit was I, I noticed that my my day to day things with the company were, were kind of just working really fairly well. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was spending a little bit more time doing websites on the side, and all of that seemed like something where I'm like, well, I'm doing a lot of stuff here, and it seems to interest me, and it seems to work out fairly well. Um, maybe I should find a way to do some of that more as as my normal job. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I, I don't know I was I was open to to something from Google happening, and they contacted me. They sent me an email to some email address I just happened to uh, look look at every now and then, but not really monitor actively. Uh, so I I spotted that and I. I went to the office here in Zurich and kind of like just chatted with some people there, and it it seemed out that they they were pretty reasonable people. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, <laughs> so so that's kind of how I, I slid into that, and um, I, I went through the normal interview process. I flew out to Mountain View to 
uh, meet a bunch of people and I, I thought overall that that went fairly well. Mm -hmm. And I, I had a fairly long time until I could let go of my company because if you've kind of built up your own company, it's really hard to let go, sure. especially if kind of the alternative is on the one hand, like your own company where you have like everything under your own control. And on the other hand, like this gigantic American company where mm -hmm. like, you have no idea what to expect. So I, I decided to take a risk and uh, go and try that out. Right. Excellent. Very cool. Um, so one of the questions a couple people had, and I, I myself had as well, was so as, as the Google Webmaster Trends Analyst, what does that job entail? Like what is sort of, uh, what do you do? And um, of course, one of the big questions always is, do you have like any involvement at all in the ranking algorithm? Yeah, I, I don't know. If only I knew what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, so far, they haven't fired me. So. <laughs> they must be doing something, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems to be OK. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for, for the most part, what I try to do is connect the kind of external community that's creating websites, that's doing SEO, to the engineers internally within Google. Okay. Uh, because the, the engineers internally, they, they're kind of afraid of the general public. And they, they speak in their engineering language. And they, they do fantastic things. But it's important that they get feedback from actual people that are kind of affected by this or that are working on websites that are trying to improve things for search, improve things for users. Uh, so connecting those two sides is something that we really try to do. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, so I was curious, what is your favorite part about working for Google and why? Um, my favorite part, I I don't know. It's it's tricky because there, there's so many things that, uh, that I find interesting. I, I think the aspect that always encourages me to, to go to work, more or less, is that there are just so many uh, fascinating and smart people that are active at Google, uh, mm -hmm. where you you come into the office and you don't see people like, oh, it's another day. It's like hitting things on a keyboard. Uh, <laughs> but they're, they're kind of motivated, and they're doing really fantastic stuff. Mm -hmm. And being able to chat with these people to see what other people are working on, that's, that's something that I find re really fascinating. And mm -hmm. uh, interacting with them, be it directly in the office or online by email, um, it's I don't know, it's motivating because you see people like actively trying to improve things significantly and not just like, oh, I got to do my, my five things today, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So um, what is a typical day for you like at Google if there is such a thing, such a thing as a typical day at Google? A typical day. I, I don't think I, I really have a, a typical day mm -hmm. uh, because everything changes so quickly. And sometimes things pop up, and suddenly it's like, oh, people on Twitter are confused. We have to find some way to explain things to them. And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes internal products need to be launched, and we need to make sure that the, the communications and everything around them are, are working well. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, just taking yesterday, for example, um, I, I met with uh, a bunch of people from the mobile indexing side uh, who are working on kind of moving mobile indexing to the next level. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're based in China, so it's like so something you do in the morning. Uh, then I met with some people from the Search Console side and uh, trying to, I, I forgot what, what exactly it was about, but 
like meet, meeting with them is always interesting because you see what they're working on and where they're stuck, where things are kind of frustrated. And in the afternoon, I did an interview with uh, with a candidate who's trying to join um, the developer relations team in India. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was interesting to, on the one hand, try to find interview questions that would match what, what they're working on, what they'd be looking at at Google, and also trying to provide something interesting from our side so that they, they kind of see what what the unique parts of Google are, the, the pros and cons, all of that. Mm -hmm. So that's usually, I don't know, kind of a mix like that is pretty common. And usually, there are also meetings in the evening when when people in, in California are up and uh, uh, want, want to discuss things. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Now, here's one question I have always wondered. Is, is the stuff you do on Twitter and the stuff you do where you communicate with SEOs, is that part considered part of your job, or is that a thing you just sort of do, um, you know, sort of voluntarily? Voluntarily, I, I don't think you could force anyone to be active on Twitter. Sure. I think that would be pretty tough. Sure. Um, yeah. But a, a lot of these things, they, they evolve over time, where someone will come up with an idea and say, like, we should try to do this, or they'll just go off and do it. Mm -hmm. And over time, it becomes something where it's like, well, this is working out fairly well. Maybe we should just continue doing it or do it more systematically. Gotcha. And that's that's kind of what, what I think what happened with Twitter, what happened with all of the office hours hangouts, where it was basically, well, we have the capability to do these kind of hangouts now. Maybe we should try it out and see what happens. Mm -hmm. and, and over time, that just became something that we started doing more regularly. OK. Good. Yeah, because I know a lot of people appreciate that you're so available to them. So I was always just curious if that was like, how that how that happens so very cool thank you um let's see so one other google question here um do you have any projects in particular maybe that you led at google that's maybe one of your uh, you know favorite project or something you're most proud of from your time at google um favorite products projects i i don't know it's it's hard to say i i think there are a lot of things that that are Pretty cool that that we worked on. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the things that that my team has been involved in is all of all of the talk about HTTPS as a ranking factor. All of that I thought was was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. uh, the the big mobile friendliness push that happened a few years back. Uh, the mobile indexing side. I think that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. What I really like about the mobile indexing side is most people seem to see it as something that's like an obvious thing, and it's not really a problem uh, compared to what we saw with mobile friendliness in the beginning where everyone was panicking. It's like, ah, <laughs> what I need to do. Yep. Uh, so I, I think that that shift has been really cool. Mm -hmm. um, also, all of the, the webmaster conferences that we've been putting on in different locations, I think that's, that's really cool. I, I think a lot of that kind of flies under the radar of most SEOs because a lot of these events are in places like India or Indonesia or Japan, uh, where there isn't really that strong SEO community that's active on Twitter as well. Sure. Mm -hmm. Cool. OK. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the Webmaster Hangouts a minute ago. Um, I was curious, uh, you know, what sort of started you doing those? And do you have maybe a, f a favorite or funny moment or memory uh, from any one of them in particular that sticks out to you? 
Um, well, I, I think we started doing them pretty much when when they became available in Google Plus. Um, the the first ones weren't recorded. At some point, we, we could record them as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that I think was kind of tied with Google Plus. Uh, Google Plus is gone now, but you can still do them over YouTube. Um, I, I think we've gone through a few iterations of like where and how you actually do them. So we're affected by all of these Google updates as well. Just from the other side. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we, we see the <laughs> flakiness with Google products directly as well, where it's like, oh, this isn't recording, or this isn't working. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's always fun. I, I think what was kind of unique was in the beginning with uh, the Hangouts in Google+, Plus, uh, all of these live kind of Hangouts things were uh, listed directly on on some common Google Plus page, where you could go as like, what what is happening at the moment? You join random discussions, and we would have totally random people join the office hours <laughs> hangouts, mm -hmm. and sometimes they'd just sit there and be like, what are these people talking about? Other times they they do something crazy, um, so but all of these things where it's. Like suddenly you have an audience that's very different than from what you normally talk to. Gotcha. Uh, I, I thought that was pretty fun. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, now I don't know how much you deal with this, but I know this used to be an issue with like for Matt Cutts when he was there. Um, you know, in terms of you know you're you're in a very public position and people get mad at Google. So I, I was just curious: do you ever do you deal much with people who are angry? You know, maybe a webmaster who's angry over algorithm update, and if so, how, sort of how do you deal with you know any of that the attacks or the negativity that the um, you know the, you know people you know people who are upset are just like aiming it at you when it's really you know a Google but yeah have you had to deal with that and how do you deal with that? Yeah, I I think for for the most part. Um, so so when you initially asked this, I was like, well, good good question. But uh, for for the most part, the SEO community is uh, surprisingly friendly and i i think overall things are are pretty nice yeah um i i do understand that sometimes algorithm changes can strongly affect the website and if you kind of have your website tied strongly to your search results then that can have a pretty material effect on on your business on your kind of well-being as well with all of that mm -hmm. so i i totally sympathize with uh, sites when when things go wrong or when they go down and Essentially, our answer is, well, we, we change things in the algorithm. We think it's better now. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that your site isn't seeing any positive effect from that. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what I think makes it a little bit easier for me compared to, uh, say, Matt Cuts in the past is that we're essentially interacting with, with the engineers as well. We're kind of between the people externally and the people internally. Uh, we're not the ones who are creating this code. So when, when something goes wrong, when a website gets dinged for spam, it's not that we're personally the ones that are involved and responsible for that, mm -hmm. um, but rather like we, we can work to kind of bring that message back to the team and say, well, people are really upset about this. We need to have clearer communications, or we need to improve things for, for these cases where we think, well, actually, it should be better. And I think for the most part, the, the folks externally understand that as well, that they're not talking to the people who are kind of like pushing the buttons and making these decisions, but rather who are trying to bring their feedback back to the team and trying to find a way to get that implemented. Uh, so I think that, that part helps quite a bit compared to, say, with Matt. 
uh, where we, he was directly on the web spam team. And if a site got dinged for web spam, he was pretty much responsible for that. Sure. Yep. Uh, so that's like there's a lot of personal aggression almost that uh, could be applied in a case like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so you're in a pretty unique position where you get to talk to a lot of people about their issues with their websites. I was curious um, if you could sort of talk about maybe what are some of the most common errors that you see websites making, and you know, in terms of uh, that maybe hurting their optimization efforts. Um, the the most common errors. So it's not that we have any kind of statistic or something that would say like which which errors people are making. Sure. Um, because a lot of times, essentially, we we see the web as it is, and we say, well, we're trying to rank sites for what we think they're about, mm -hmm. and if we think they're about something else, then we would try to rank them about that. So it's not that we, we kind of have this list of issues. I think from interacting with sites, the one thing I see most commonly nowadays is not anything technical. I, I think technical issues have been kind of solved really well in that people know how to make technically good websites. They use CMSs that essentially create a well-made website automatically. They have a lot of technical information on how to make websites. Um, but rather, from, from the content side, where they're creating content that doesn't really match what users are looking for. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's that's pretty straightforward And that I'll, I'll do a site clinic, and I'll open up a site, and I'll be like, I don't know what this website is about. It looks really nice. Uh, clearly, someone paid for a professional designer. Um, but I don't know if they're selling a product, if they're selling a service, what, what it is that they're selling. And I don't know where what I would rank this website for, because there's just no obvious text on the page. Mm -hmm. There's nothing kind of clearly saying, well, people who have this problem or who are looking for this kind of information, they should come to us, because we can do x. Um, that's, that's completely lacking. It, it looks really nice. It's a really nice and fancy marketing site. If you know the business, maybe you already know what they're doing. But if you're a search engine and you don't know what this business is offering, then it's really hard to figure out what we should be showing it for. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that I see happen regularly all the time, uh, even from, from companies that, that look really fancy, where you'd say, well, there's a lot of money involved here. Clearly, they have a marketing team. They have a design team. Um, but they're just not bringing kind of the, the information that people are looking for to their website. Mm -hmm. So that's something where, on, on the one hand, from an SEO point of view, you could say they could do some technical things and add some structured data to their pages. But I think the, the main thing is really just that they, they need to do something like keyword research, or they need to clearly define what, what unique things they're selling and how they want to position that. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so yeah, this sort of ties into what my next question was about. I was going to sort of ask you as we are getting closer to 2020 here, um, you know, for people who are trying to think ahead in terms of what their what should be in their SEO strategy for 2020, um, you know, what would you sort of recommend to people if they came up to you and said, hey, you know, what should I do to increase my visibility in Google search over the coming year? Is there anything else uh, other than maybe what you've already just talked about there uh, with obviously matching user intent with the content and all that. Yeah, I, I think content is definitely a big thing. Um, yeah. I, I think for the most part, SEOs understand that. Like yep. if, 
if they're coming coming to me and they're already kind of in this mindset of I'm, I'm looking at keywords and trying to map things to users and I'm creating content that matches what people are searching for, then I, I think they already have that. Mm -hmm. um, I see that issue more with general businesses who don't have kind of this SEO mindset. Um, and the, the things that I would focus on there from, from an SEO point of view or from a technical point of view are, on the one hand, everything around speed. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's still a topic that, that we see a lot of uh, trouble with and, and that there are lots of really slow websites out there. And there are different me ways of measuring speed, but uh, it's, it's still the case that often these sites are not looking at speed at all. Mm -hmm. uh, so speed is definitely something I would focus on. Uh, then everything around structured data, uh, which kind of goes into the area of rich results primarily, where you're thinking about how, how can you present this information on your pages in a machine-readable way, uh, in a way that you have a visible effect in the search results as well. Uh, so I think that's something that has come up quite a bit over the last year or so, but I think it will continue to evolve in that um, if you're creating a website, you need to make sure that you don't just have things covered now, but rather that you have a structure that's flexible enough that will let you say, well, this type of markup just came out last week, and I can apply it on these pages on my website because it really matches there. And different types of markup keep coming out. So you need to kind of have a structure that's flexible enough that lets you experiment a little bit and try different markup types out without having to swap out the whole website. Mm -hmm. Excellent. OK, well, I, I know you usually can't pre-announce stuff. And I'm not expecting you to, but I have to ask because a few people asked me to ask you, is there anything new and exciting coming to the Google Search Console that maybe SEOs will be super excited about maybe in the next couple of months? Anything you could maybe hint at if you can't pre-announce anything? <laughs> in, anything I can hint at? Uh, not. <laughs> Not really any, anything special. I, I think the speed report is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, some of the feedback is is kind of mixed. I, I think that's uh, fr from the nature of kind of this complex topic of speed. Mm -hmm. um, I, I imagine there will be some iterations there. But uh, I, I know the Search Console team has been really active. So I, I would definitely see some things coming out over the next couple of months. So it's not. Like they're they're not running on autopilot and just playing pool. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. Good to know. All right. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about machine learning because um, obviously we just had the big BERT update. Um, so I was just sort of curious to get your take on how you see the machine learning elements of Google evolving, uh, maybe over the next couple of years, um, and how it will impact search and. Do you see this sort of changing the way the SEOs do their jobs over the next few years? Or do you think you know doing the basics that we've been doing will continue to work? And that's sort of what the machine learning is trying to do, is reward the things that the people are currently doing? If you could just sort of speak a little bit to that. Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of the efforts around machine learning kind of go into better understanding the unstructured nature of the web, mm -hmm. uh, where often we don't have really clear signals. So when, when you look at websites that, that a good SEO has been working on, 
there are some really clear signals. There, there are clear meta tags on there. There's structured data. Mm -hmm. uh, you can tell that the text is something that someone has worked on to make sure that it, it covers the topics and the keywords and type of things that they know people are actually searching for. Um, but there's a lot of websites out there that don't have things that well structured. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's something where I, I could expect uh, kind of machine learning to help a little bit in that uh, like if, if we don't know what a page is about and we just have this big chunk of text, how can we better understand which entities are on this page? And that's one thing to do that in English where there, there's a lot of content out there where we have teams that have been working on this for years and years. Mm -hmm. um, but but how do you do that in German or French or Italian or Arabic or Chinese, where you have completely different language constructs? And that's, I, I think, an area where there's still a lot of opportunity uh, for machine learning to make things better for search, mm -hmm. uh, to make it so that we, we can provide more relevant search results. So not necessarily to say that SEO is irrelevant, you don't need to do it, but rather that uh, we we just understand these pages better, and we can bring them at the right time for the right queries. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know if you saw some of the examples of of Bert uh, that I think we had in the blog post. I don't know. One of the queries was something like, "Can I buy medicine for someone?" Uh, where essentially the implication is, well, you buy it not for yourself, but you buy it for someone else. Mm -hmm. And what what are the requirements around that? And that's something that. In, in English, we we were essentially matching the keywords, more or less. I mean, we, we do did do some fancy things there as well. Uh, but matching the keywords brings us a lot of really good results. And we think, well, that's kind of OK. Uh, and with BERT, we, we kind of took that to the next level and really tried to figure out, well, this is the important aspect of this query. And that's something that we can do in English now with BERT. I, I think there's probably still a lot of room for improvement there in English. Uh, but how do you deal with that with other languages? And especially some of the other languages are actually pretty big, where there are lots of people that are searching in Hindi. And if we don't understand their queries as well as we understand the English ones, then we show them pages that are essentially just keyword matching, uh, which sometimes doesn't work well for some languages. Gotcha. Excellent. All right. Great answer. Um, next question. We'll do a couple little fun questions here. Um, what's the best piece of advice that's ever been given to you, and who gave it to you? Something that maybe you've used, uh, in you know, in the business world. Okay. Um, so this is something that came, I, I think, from the, from the forum times, uh, from the the creative side forums. Um, the Eamon John uh, was active there. Uh, he's he's still active on in the yeah. SEO side, mm -hmm. and he's he's been doing SEO since since forever. He really knows his stuff. But one of the things that he always kind of did a little bit differently compared to other people in the forums was that he would try to take a step back and try to figure out well what what is the actual problem that you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. Like you you come to the forum and it's like how do I implement this meta tag? Like technically. We can show you how to do that, but why? why? Why are you trying to do this? And maybe this is something that you shouldn't even be doing. Um, so kind of this general advice of, well, is this question even the right question to ask? Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you guide people to moving from focusing on one specific aspect of a problem to looking at the bigger picture, and then maybe focusing on a different aspect of that problem? 
Uh, that's something that, that I find really critical, uh, especially when, when it comes to SEO. It's really easy to say, well, these are five factors that I need to do. And you have this top five things that you need to do for SEO. And then you focus on those things, but you don't realize, for example, that actually the text on your page is completely missing. Like You have all the meta tags, but you don't have any text, and then nothing works. Uh, or you have all of the right uh, technical elements, but actually your product is terrible, so it doesn't convert, and you don't make any sales anyway. Uh, so trying to find the, the right level uh, to look at a problem, I think that's really critical. Mm -hmm. Great. I like that. Um, now, on the other end, is there a worst piece of SEO advice that you still hear or constantly hear, or even something just maybe about Google, uh, just a myth you sort of wish would die, that you would just never hear again? Um, not not really. I, I think, I mean, not, not that there are no myths out there, uh, but uh, I, I think a lot of these things, they, they stick around for a reason. And it's important that people feel free to ask something that might be a dumb question. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you never ask a dumb question, then you never learn what the actual answer is. So it's not that I want people to stop asking this kind of a question. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's important that they ask things that are confusing to them. And even if that's something that we hear repeatedly that is a myth or that's based on an assumption that's just not true, um, I, I think it's, it's important that people feel the freedom to be able to ask all of these things. Mm -hmm. As you were saying that, I was just curious, is there one question you get more than any other from, like, you know, as, all, as you're talking to all these people, or is there, like, one question in particular that you get, like, so often that you're just waiting for it? Uh, not not really. No. Uh, that's, that's something I, I thought with, with the office hour hangouts that I thought, like, after a year, we'd have every question covered. Mm -hmm. uh, but there there's always something new out there and it's not the case that every hangout has the same kinds of questions uh there there is some common overlap that happens but it's like people are really creative and the web is really flexible so yep. people find different different confusing things sure okay excellent okay so is there anything in particular you're most excited about with google or search in particular right now um, I I find the whole assistant side really fascinating. Um, I'm still not sure how how that will play out or how that will actually work out in practice. It feels like there's still a lot of room to make something that is like really a general purpose assistant that will answer things and do things for you. Mm -hmm. uh, but I I find the whole notion of being able to talk to something and it looks things up on the internet and tries to give you some answers, I, I find that really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yep, very cool. OK, I have just a couple more questions but I wanted to get in. We had a lot of uh, questions from the audience. So uh, let's skip ahead to them. Um, cool. First question, um, this will be a fun one for you. Okay, uh, Ryan Jones wanted to know, if I don't have a manual penalty, is there any reason for me to disavow links? Okay, uh, the disavow question, that, that comes up every now and then, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't have a manual action, so if, if you do have a manual action and it's for links, then obviously cleaning up those links or doing the disavow is, is the right thing to do. Uh, if you don't have one, the, the direction I'd look at it is, so 
maybe just taking a step back, in general, we, we try to make our algorithms so that if they recognize problematic links, we, we try to just ignore those. Uh, so for, for the most part, we, we just ignore that. Um, I, I would look at it from two directions. On the one hand, if when you look at your links, you start to see, well, there's these patterns here. And if someone from the web spam team were to look at it, they would definitely give me a manual action. Then that's the kind of thing where you say, well, this is pretty obvious. I, I need to clean this up before I run into a problem. Uh, so that's something where I disavow. And the other side is something where it's more, I, I think, a personal, emotional thing almost, where you're, you're just totally overwhelmed with all of these links questions. You never did any weird backlink building, but all of these crazy links are out there on the web, which if you've been active on the web for a number of years, you, you just collect all of these crazy links. Sure. And you, you hear from SEOs conflicting things, and you're, you're just confused, and you're like, are these links causing a problem? Uh, do I need to fix something there? And that's something where I'd say, well, if you're losing sleep over this, then maybe you should just disavow and make sure that things are essentially working well again. Uh, so if you're really kind of stuck and you're like really frustrated and unsure, then go ahead and disavow, because then those links are definitely taken out of the equation. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, next question from Twitter. Stephen Shelton wanted to know, Google's warning people about slow sites. Is there any chance that Google will warn people about sites that autoplay videos loudly? Uh, he says he almost always immediately navigates out of there, and that's same for me as well. So I was curious to get your take on that, <laughs> if there's anything we can do to uh, in terms of that. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> Other than not doing yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I I usually just have my volume turned down because yeah. that's that's always so frustrating. Yeah. Um, but I think I, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think this is something that's within the better ad standard as well. Mm -hmm. um, kind of these auto playing videos, especially with the sound on. Uh, so that's something from the better ad standard side that could be something that that might be playing a role there. Um, but. The, the better ad standard uh, thing where I, I forgot what it's called in Chrome. It's essentially um, that, that we've detected that our site has a lot of obnoxious ads on it. Sure. Then Chrome will, will block those ads when people go to that site. Sure. Uh, so that's not something that would be happening from search, but that could be happening from the Chrome side, uh, where Chrome just says, I'm just going to like block all of these ads and all of these obnoxious videos that you autoplay. And like, you, you can fix it if you want. Uh, so I don't know if that would happen from the search side. I think that's kind of tricky for search to try to figure out. Um, but from the Chrome side, I could definitely see something happening there where they're saying, well, this is obnoxious behavior. We're going to make sure it doesn't bother users in general. Mm -hmm. Good answer. OK, next, uh, let's do this one from I believe it's Amin Dahamin. I'm apologizing if I'm butchering your name. Uh, on Twitter, he wanted to know, uh, John, how do you see the future of search in maybe 10 years' time? The future of search in 10 years? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. I, I think, <laughs> I, I, I think like looking back 10 years, um, I, I think search will still be fairly similar in that there'll still be URLs and pages with content. 
and you you look at the content somehow, and and these pages have addresses, and you have some kind of content language behind it, probably some variation of HTML, and search will still be you ask it a question, and you get some results. And you need to figure out which of these results is the right one for you, uh, because asking the, a question that there's only one answer for is really hard. Uh, so I think some amount of that will remain. Uh, the, the details of how that's handled and how well that's handled, how, how that's automated, I, I don't know. No idea how, how that will happen. My guess is 10 years is a fairly long time, but it's also fairly short yeah. overall. Mm -hmm. uh, like Looking back 10 years, it feels like Google was still kind of this uh, entry form and turned returned a bunch of results that you clicked on. And it's still kind of the same. You see a page with links on it, and you click on the links, and you go to different things. So I, I have a hard time thinking that suddenly we'll have this brain-computer interface that will give you the right results in your brain without even having to ask a question. Maybe in 20 or 50 years, I don't know, but <laughs> uh, probably not in 10. OK, another question. Andrew Shotland uh, on Twitter wanted to know, how do you decide whose questions to answer on Twitter? Or put another way, how do you increase the odds that you will answer a question on Twitter? Um, he, he, he wonders, is it, you know, do you, is it making it applicable to a large audience? Or you know, is it more you're more interested in like an edge case, oddball sort of issue? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think he has to send the question to you, and then you ask it to me, and then I try to find an answer. Right? Worked, yeah. I, that seems to be the, the approach now. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it's a mix uh, of, of different things uh, for me in practice. Uh, on the one hand, there's tons of stuff happening on Twitter. And if you don't pay attention, it kind of disappears. Mm -hmm. uh, so if someone is asking a random question and I'm not active on Twitter at the time, then it's possible that I just missed the question. Uh, that's kind of like Twitter is this big stream, and you dip your fingers in it to get some things out. Um, that's that's one aspect. The, the other aspect is also, I, I think, the the general, general applicability of the question is, is one thing that's kind of useful. Um, how easily can I actually answer the question on Twitter? Mm -hmm. uh, where if it's if it's a specific site, is it something that I can I can look up an example that they provide and give some direct feedback on that? Or is it basically these search results are all terrible and like, okay. I, I can't really do anything specific with that. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the, the kind of thing where it has to have the right level of specificity. I don't know how you say that, uh, to, to work out that actually you can provide an answer on Twitter. Uh, the other thing is, if it's too general, then the, the type of answer that you'd give is sometimes very confusing, where when people take it out of context, which always happens to our things, mm -hmm. um, then suddenly it, it starts meaning something completely different, where we say, well, you need to include that keyword at least once on your page if you want to rank for it. Uh, then people turn that around and say, well, like, I need to put all my keywords on my pages, uh, <laughs> so all variations of all my keywords that I want to rank for. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, well, actually, in this specific case, maybe they had a website that was just one giant image. And it's like, of course, you need to put some words on the page. But that doesn't mean that it applies to all websites. 
So finding, I, I think the balance in between there is, is sometimes really tricky. Um, I find doing that in, in video answers is a lot easier mm -hmm. um, because the, the answer is directly tied to a specific question. Uh, where it's a lot easier for folks to look at that answer and say, well, this is the context of that question and uh, the context of the answer. And that makes it a little bit easier to also um, look at some of the related topics that are around this, where, like I mentioned, maybe this isn't really the question that you need to be focusing on. Um, and that's something that you can talk about a little bit easier in, in a video format compared to kind of this limited two, three sentence tweet where you have to try to cover all of the possibilities in one answer uh, because like you're trying to answer this question. So I guess in short, I, I don't know, it it depends is kind of the, <laughs> the more common thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, it's almost the, the meme, I guess, but uh, it's on the one hand, the timing is is useful. So if you understand when I get up and check Twitter in the morning, it's like maybe that's a good chance to get a question in. Uh, on the other hand, having a question that I can actually answer in tweet forum that makes a big difference. Sure. Uh, so okay. those those are kind of the the things I would aim for if you want to optimize for an answer for me. <laughs> so we'll call that JMO, John Mueller optimization. There we go. I guess we got something yeah. new. All right. Um, since we're talking Twitter, a, a few people asked, and I guess I will ask it. It's not the most important question, but why the banana emoji in your Twitter name? Why the bananas? Um, I, I think that's similar to why I have my Google Plus profile on Twitter linked as well. Ah. Um, it, it encourages people to ask questions. Um, so I don't, I don't know. It's, it's mostly fun. So I think the origin of the bananas was I was looking for something that I could put into Google Trends so that I could get some emails from them to kind of see what, what these emails look like. And trying to find something that's non-controversial, like, I don't know, bananas or cheese or whatever. Uh, so I use bananas. And I've been getting kind of these messages from Google Trends every now and then saying, oh, bananas are becoming more popular in Switzerland. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's how I ended up with bananas. Very nice. OK. So let's see. Roger Monty, uh, of course, is a news writer for Search Engine Journal, had a question uh, he wanted me to ask you. Uh, it was about legacy domain penalty issues. Um, you know, uh, earlier this year, you had talked about this on a couple of calls, which is basically, you know, maybe a domain gets a penalty, blacklisted, and then sold. And then, you know, the new person buys it, and they sort of have no way to um, you know, perhaps get a penalty lifted because they just don't know about it. Um, so he was just sort of wondering if there was anything else that you could, um, you know, sort of talk about in that area. Um, you know, is there anything that, you know, if, if there's nothing in the search console, how can someone sort of deal with that issue? Okay. Um, so if there's a manual action and it's still live and it was done for a previous owner, it would still be listed in your Search Console account. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's that's kind of the the most common situation where you buy a domain, you think it's a new one, but then you realize actually it was some spammer's website for a mm -hmm. while, or maybe it was a legitimate site and then it expired and someone took the expired domain and put some spam on it until it was it was useless and 
now you ended up buying it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that I, I think is is the most common situation. And doing the reconsideration flow there is essentially what what you need to do. Okay. Um, if it's if it's a, a manual action based on the content, where we say, well, the content was pure spam, then having your real content on there essentially tells us, well. It's like, well, there's there's something useful here now. And the reconsideration process is essentially pro forma. And that the, the WebSAM team looks at it and says, well, this is reasonable. And they, they lift the manual action. Uh, if it's a manual action based on things that are outside of your website, like something based on links, then that's that's a bit trickier um, because like you don't automatically lose all of those links just because you're a new person using that domain. Uh, so that's something where you you kind of need to work to get that cleaned up anyway that uh, any site would have to get cleaned up if they had a manual action with regards to links. Mm -hmm. uh, what I usually recommend people do is use archive.org and the different kind of link checking tools that are out there to see what what has happened in the past with this domain name? Is it really something that's completely fresh, like a completely new domain name? Uh, with all of the new level domains, that's that's certainly a possibility. Um, or was there something else on here before? And with archive.org, you can look at the older versions of the site. You can kind of make a judgment call. It's like, was there something reasonable here? Or uh, was the previous website totally spammy? Usually, that's pretty obvious if you if you've seen kind of the usual spam on the internet. And with the link checking tools, you can also pretty much see like was there a lot of link building being done here? Uh, is this something that looks really problematic? That looks like a lot of trouble to clean up, or is this something that uh, once once you get started, you can kind of disavow a few things, or maybe there's a lot of cruft out there that you can essentially ignore. Mm -hmm. So that's those are kind of the things that I would do before um, picking up a domain name. Um, it's it's obviously much harder if you pick up a domain name and you put your website up, and then afterwards you realize that actually there's all of this history behind the domain name. Uh, so I try to do that ahead of time, if at all possible, or at least before you put kind of too much work into actually creating the content for the website. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Uh, one more. We'll do one more audience question. I had so many. Um, apologies to all who I who we didn't get to, but uh, this is one question I, 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 I hear a lot myself. Uh, Jerry Lowe uh, wanted me to ask: Would ranking too well for a non-relevant topic jeopardize the original rankings for a site? Say, for example, uh, an SEO blog ranks number one in many gardening-related search terms, and then, but they lose rankings on SEO-related search terms. Um, could you speak to that just a little bit? Um, sure. I I think in in the past I would say that's absolutely no problem. Um, in that, like sites rank for different things, and sometimes they rank for totally unrelated things. Um, I I think. Over over time, I'm kind of tended more towards uh, seeing this as potentially a sign that Google doesn't understand my site that mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. uh, where if if you're really primarily talking about SEO and just some of your examples are about gardening, but actually you just rank for all of the gardening stuff, then that might be a sign that Google doesn't really understand what your site is about, mm -hmm. and that could be a sign that. 
maybe there's something with structured data that you can do to really kind of make it clear which entities you're talking about. Um, maybe that's something where you could say, well, I, I will put my gardening examples into images rather than text to make sure that Google doesn't get confused about that, um, all of those things. I think in the past, I would see this as, well, it's free traffic to your site. Uh, but essentially, if someone comes to an SEO blog and they're searching for gardening information and your website just has some examples for gardening website, then that's probably not going to be that useful for them. Mm -hmm. So it's bad for the user on the one hand, which you, you might not care about. Um, but it's not traffic that's going to be useful for you either. Right. Uh, so if you look at analytics and you just look at the total visitors, then it'll look like you have a lot of visitors, but you don't realize that actually all of these people, they don't want to go to your website. They want to go somewhere else. Yes. So it's kind of traffic that you're tracking in a way that um, almost distracts you from focusing on the right metrics. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's something where I'd say, well, maybe it makes sense to find a way to really clarify what you're talking about. The, the tricky part here is that your primary talk, topic might be something that's really uh, competitive, where it's it might be really easy to rank for these kind of niche terms that you also mentioned on your site. So you rank for them. Um, but actually, the, the primary topic of your site is really a competitive area where even when Google does understand your website well, you're not going to rank that well for that. So kind of understanding that as well is uh, something that's I don't know, a, a tricky element that you kind of have to balance as an SEO, where you have to take your experience and say, well, these are kind of really competitive keywords. Therefore, I don't expect to rank for it well. Or you might look at it and say, well, these are really easy keywords. I should be ranking well there. Awesome answer. I like that. OK. Um, so that's it for audience questions. Um, I just had two more for you. So my first question, what's next for John Mueller? What's next? I don't know. Uh, so. I have another video conference lined up later today uh, with, with a bunch of product experts from the help forums. Um, but kind of like midterm, long term, I, I don't know. I, I think the, the work at Google is really exciting. And uh, the folks that I work with are really fantastic people. Uh, so I don't expect to see a lot of changes there unless I do something really wrong. <laughs> Hopefully not. Uh, and could you just remind people where people can find you? Uh, on social media, or if there's anywhere in particular um, you'd like people to yeah. potentially reach out to you? I, I think easiest is on, on Twitter, just John MU uh, on Twitter. Um, also, of course, on YouTube for the, the office hours, if you want to ask questions in person, sometimes that's a little bit easier to get your question in. Uh, so I check those out as well. OK, and keep searching Google, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, use that search engine. Yeah, you might just find the answer you're looking for. All right. So, John, thanks so much for joining us uh, on the Search Engine Journal show today and uh, talking to us. This has been so great. And I also want to thank you for all that you have done and continue to do to help you know, webmasters and SEOs and everyone in our industry. Uh, you're so incredibly giving of your time and knowledge. And, uh, you know, it's just so great that you're able to help so many people, um, you know, solve their website or SEO issues. So you're a great ambassador and we re really all appreciate the heck out of you. So thank you for all that you do for us. Oh, man. Thanks, Danny. I'm blushing. <laughs> all right.
right, so that does it for us. Thanks for listening today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Please tune in again next week for another great episode of the Search Engine Journal Show. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, do it. Uh, and then uh, that's it for us again. So uh, thanks, to John, for joining us. Uh, so long, and thanks for listening. <laughs>